Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream extreme edition. Mm, we so are extreme. working as we have in the past without Annette, who once again did not show up for work today. We fired her. We talked about this. She still didn't show up for work. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, what I realize about Annette is that actually I've never even met her. I don't think she's ever sh showed up for work. And I drove you, by. You, just, you keep different hours. I drove by the place that we send her checks. Mm -hmm. It's a bowling alley. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what's up. But worse than that, however, mm -hmm. we are working without Zach. Yes. Now, Zach is, I probably shouldn't say this widely. So let's keep it between us and our audience. Zach mm -hmm. is on the lam. He is. Uh, on the run from the Marshall Service, mm. and he is in Pick a Continent. He's on the other side of the equator at the moment. Pick a Continent. Any continent? Yes. Antarctica. Okay, he is at the Brown Station in Antarctica, and uh, I'm sure the Marshall Service will uh, be able to find him there. It's not a highly populated place. He shouldn't be hard to spot, even if he's uh, in disguise. So anyway, um, Zach is... Uh, not present behind the producer's desk, which means I'm doing a few extra things that I don't usually have to do, and uh, I partially understand. So anyway, it's all good. We'll see how it goes, though. Indeed. Yeah, we will. And uh, this, is this is an unusual week for a lot of reasons. Uh, we are also not doing a Q&A today, so it's going to be this. We're going to try to keep it tight and, uh, and, and just... Constrained and just like that. I should point out, I am Dr. Brett Weinstein, which I forgot to mention. You are Dr. Heather Hying, which they mostly know, but some may not. Some may not. And uh, this is live stream number, are we still in the, it's a 1,000. call it a lime stream? A li <laughs> yeah, it's a lime. Actually, yeah. I mean, if you got to pick a flavor for a stream, lime isn't bad. Totally. Yeah. Lime stream. Uh, 164, I believe. 164. 164. Yep. Uh, so we are going to talk a little bit about sort of, um, let's see. The nature of science, race, death, sex, all of those things today. Yeah. A little bit different, a little bit philosophical. Yeah. 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 Usually when people talk about uh, sex and death, it's in the other order. But I guess... But know, I think this is the order in which we're going to take it today, I think. I, I, I believe it is wise for us to separate ourselves from those other conversations in any case. So, yeah. Right. All right, this is all good. Now I have to remember some more things. Um, not, not yet. Not Why? just yet. Okay. No, you... Uh, <laughs> You get cooking, and okay. I will prepare over here. You won't even notice I'm doing it. No, I, excuse me, I won't. Um, we are grateful to you, our audience, always. Uh, and I am grateful to the um, remarkable number of new subscribers to Natural Selections this week. That was uh, prompted in part, I believe, by Substack. Thank you. Uh, making Natural Selections their number one featured um newsletter for a spell this week <clears throat> for a few days early in the week by the way hell yeah and congratulations hell yeah that was great uh and uh and then the piece that i posted on tuesday called apparently we're the bad guys basically attempted um you know i i, I was not attempting to be thorough i knew that i was not being thorough i would love for someone else to to be thorough but uh i just you know, it's getting really old. It's getting really old that people continue to tell us that we are the ones who are, you know, killing people and making errors across the board. And I said, you know, here's some things that we said throughout the uh, throughout the spell that we've been doing this. And, um, and you know, we got some things wrong. Here are a couple of things we got wrong. Here's a hell of a lot of things we got right. And I linked, I don't know, maybe a tenth of what I could have linked and just ran out of time. But people have really liked that piece and I encourage you to go and check it out if you have not. Share it, like it, subscribe there, subscribe here. 
on our um, on Brett Weinstein's YouTube channel, which is the main one that we're streaming from. Also on Odyssey and the Clips channel too, where you can find uh, briefer briefer things that we talk about. Right, like, subscribe, comment in the comments. We actually want to know why it is unlikely that Annette lives in a bowling alley. So if you feel like Ooh, telling it, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, we do. we do. Yeah, we yeah. talked about this. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't even like a, you know, there was a second story where she might be renting an apartment. There's just nothing. It's a bowling alley. Seller. Uh, we can't. We could fire her. Nope, 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 oh. nope, nope. Basement. <laughs> oh, oh, seller. Got it. <laughs> right. Okay. I, I'm on track. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Uh, so you could also uh, consider joining one of our Patreons. Uh, next week before the live stream, you will be having one of your Patreon conversations. Uh, we have private monthly Q&As at mine, and you can also access our Discord community at either of our Patreons, where uh, people are having honest conversations on all sorts of topics um, through many different media, and uh, it's really it's really quite wonderful. You can so, even have an honest conversation about dishonest conversations, indeed. and you will, you will have your pick. There are so many yes. that you could choose from. Yes. Um, I Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now you're about to be up. We also are supported by our sponsors who we carefully uh, pick and curate, and uh, we only read ads for sponsors that we actually approve of and really vouch for, so here we go. All right. We are about to transition into ad mode. Here it is. Boom. Okay. There it is. Ad mode. Our first sponsor this week has become a favorite here at Dark Horse. It's House of Macadamias. That's right. Nuts. Macadamia nuts. Tree nuts are delicious and nutritious. They're generally high in fat low in carbs, which is increasingly understood to be both satiating and good for you, unlike what you've been being told by, you know, the food pyramid people forever. But each species of nut is different, and for many of us, macadamias are the best. Macadamia nuts take a very long time to grow, and because they are both rare and highly sought after, they have both the dubious distinction of being the world's most expensive nut, and um, both. I just read both there for no good reason. They have the dubious distinction of being the world's most expensive nut. Between the taste and the health benefits, though, they're worth it. They have fewer carbohydrates than most other nuts, for instance, half of what cashews or pistachios have, and two-thirds of what almonds have, which makes them the perfect snack for breaking a daily fast and controlling blood glucose. They're also uniquely rich in omega-7s, including especially palmitoleic acid, an unsaturated fat that has been linked to natural collagen production, fat loss, and heart health. And House of Macadamias is intent on making this amazing food accessible to everyone. They've partnered with more than 90 farmers in Africa and now make one-of-a-kind vegan, keto, and paleo snacks. These include their dark chocolate-dipped macadamias and a delicious assortment of bars made with 45% macadamia nuts in flavors including salted caramel and chocolate coconut. But our favorites of all of their products, and we've had almost all of them, I think, are the simply delicious salted macadamias made with Namibian sea salt. Just macadamia nuts, Namibian sea salt, amazing. They're really great. We love them and think that you will too. They come in these um, little bags that are easy to carry around. And, you know, when you when you feel like noshing, they're a great, a great thing to eat. Our House of Academias highly recommends House of Macadamias for all of your academic needs. Looking for something to nourish and energize you while you pursue, while you, mm, while in pursuit of the truth. Right in English. Mm, yeah. Or the next summit. That's it. Okay. <laughs> 
that way. You can. No, seriously, if you want to climb a mountain or uh, or think through hard ideas, you're going to need some good nourishing food, and House of Macadamias has just the stuff for you. Go to www.houseofmacadamias.com and use code DARKHORSE for a 20% discount on every order. Plus, Dark Horse listeners will receive a complimentary four-ounce bag of macadamias when they order three or more boxes of any macadamia product. Once again, that's www.houseofmacadamias, M-A-C-A-D-A-M-I-A-S. Use code DARKHORSE for 20% off every order. You won't be sorry. Before you read the second ad, I am, as you read, just going to go off screen for a moment and advise our other son that we can hear him. All right. Okay. I bet you go can't guess who our next ad, though, is. If I can't. You, if you do guess, I will buy you dinner. Okay. Oh, awesome. Well, we seem to have a, 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 a nut theme going, so maybe it's like a nuts or seeds or something. Seed. Very good. Nice. All right. All right. All right. Fair and square. All right. Uh, I was excited to read this one this week. Um, because after COVID, who knows whether they're related, but um, I had some uh, gut distress. And as all of you know, uh, gut biota are um, very, very important to all sorts of aspects of health for reasons that we are only beginning to fully understand. But in any case, our next sponsor is Seed. Seed is a company focused on bacteria and the microbiome. They make a probiotic called DS01, Daily uh, Symbiotic. Here at Dark Horse, we always prefer eating real food to taking pills, but we really love this product. If you've tried probiotics before and they haven't worked or you've wondered about them and haven't ventured in, this is a different kind of probiotic and it's fantastic. There are a lot of things that you can do to enhance your health. Our sign-off here at Dark Horse includes three of them. Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. But a lot is hidden in those word. what const words. There's more than one word in that. It's, a, it's, all, it's almost yep. beyond a phrase. What constitutes good food, for instance? Good food is real food, food, whole food, food that has been alive recently and was grown with care in conditions as ancient as possible given the constraints of the 21st century. But even many people who eat such a diet are missing something. We contain multitudes. Every individual human contains so many other organisms, some of which may harm us, but many of which exist with us in harmony. We need them. This is why probiotics can be an important tool in a healthy lifestyle, even if you eat nutrient-dense food and avoid processed foods and sugar. But not all probiotics are created equal. Seed DS01 Daily Symbiotic is a broad-spectrum 2-in-1 probiotic plus prebiotic. It contains 24 distinct probiotic strains, and they are in a 2-in-1 capsule, which protects the probiotic until they hit the colon, where they are most effective. If you have taken a probiotic before and never felt a difference, it's likely because the good bacteria weren't surviving your GI tract, which is, of course, built to kill off things that try to get in through what you eat with a very low pH. Um, and that's why you've likely never felt a difference. Um, seed is designed differently. That's why it works. It's designed to protect the important stuff so it passes through that very acidic environment and gets to the place where you actually need them. Seed's daily symbiotic. It's, it's one of these obvious in retrospect. Yeah. Things, right? Like, oh, you, you're going to have to double hull that in order to get it through the part of the digestive tract, That's which built. is designed to destroy things that come through. It's the built yeah. to get through that first line of defense because these are um, good things that you need. Yeah. Seed's daily symbiotic supports gut, skin, and heart health and micronutrient synthesis. 
We have heard from several people who have used seed and report improvements to their digestive function in just 24 to 48 hours. Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash darkhorse and use the code darkhorse to redeem 20% off your first, first months of Seed's DS1 Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com slash darkhorse and use the code darkhorse at checkout. And yes, I did experience a difference. Always hard to know whether I was just moving that direction or not, but it felt likely to have been responsive to this probiotic. Yeah, it's it's great stuff. All right, and our final sponsor this week is Mudwater. Uh, and before I start reading, I'm gonna just show the, the can. I will say that all of our sponsors this week actually have great packaging and that's in some way trivial, um, but but it's nice, right? It's it's nice to feel like this. The seed comes in these nice glass jars, and then they send you the replenishment in um, like biodegradable bags. Uh, and this is a nice tin, and the macadamia nuts come in these nice little pouches. Um, so it's I just, will advise, though, yes. um, from personal experience, when you use the mud water, mm-hmm. take it out of the tin. Yeah. So if you uh, if you just put this tin directly into your mug of hot water, uh, you're not going to get the taste sensation you're looking for, and you're also likely to chip your teeth. Yes, so, but it will um, last longer, but it's a trade-off. It is a trade-off, although you will be heating the contents of the tin by uh, submerging it. It in will a- last less long than if you don't do it, but a lot longer than if you use the product. Than if but, you actually use the product. Yeah, all right. I think we've now thoroughly confused the matter. <laughs> yes. I, I recommend actually using mud water. It's fantastic. Um, it's a coffee alternative um, but I think that's that's sort of what we're we're told to say. It's a coffee alternative, but really it's a delicious it's a it's a delicious drink. I mean, you can add it to lots of stuff, as we'll talk about here. Um, but it's a delicious drink that you for the morning with a little bit of caffeine, about a seventh the amount of coffee. Uh, but you know, if you have a tendency to want to drink warm drinks during the day, and sometimes it's coffee, sometimes it's tea, um, put this into your rotation. It's really fantastic. It's made with four medicinal mushrooms plus herbs and spices. Spices. With a seventh of caffeine as a cup of coffee, you'll get energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash of coffee if that sort of thing happens to you. And it's delicious. If you like the routine of making and drinking a cup of warmth in the morning but don't drink coffee or trying to cut down, try this, mud water. Maybe you resolve to drink less coffee in the new year or are realizing at the end of February, nope, beginning of March, that <laughs> it's not quite working. <laughs> If you're looking for a different way to kick off your day, a delicious, warming, enhancing way that isn't just a caffeine rush, try mud water. Each ingredient was added with intention. It has cacao and chai, masala chai with black tea, black tea, ginger, cardamom, cloves, nutmeg, black pepper, cacao, lion's mane, cordyceps, chaga, and reishi, cinnamon, turmeric, Himalayan salt. It's really excellent. And they also make a non-dairy creamer, which comes in this little bag. I was going to say fancy. It's like the opposite of fancy, which is nice. You don't want a fancy bag to have your creamer. Um, it's made out of coconut milk and MCT, and it's it's great. And they also make a sweetener out of coconut palm sugar. Wait a minute. Do I have the, no, I have the creamer here. Yep. A sweetener out of coconut palm sugar and lacuma, which is the fruit of an Andean tree used by the Inca to add if you prefer those options. I don't know how much the Inca use lacuma anymore, but it was used by the Inca. <laughs> In the subjugation of their neighbors, yes. which wasn't as bad as it might have been. Really? Yeah. No, actually. <laughs> That's where we're going. <laughs> Perhaps we should have that conversation later, but there was a kind of a federating effect. Uh, well, so, okay, let's, let's, 
let's go through here and let's actually start the top of the hour by with a brief discussion of the Inca. Okay. <laughs> sure. Okay. Rather than adding that into the <laughs> middle of the Mudwater ad. All right. Um, or you can mix a match. Add a bit of their coconut milk and MCT creamer with some honey from your favorite bees. And if you don't have favorite bees, get some honey from your favorite beekeeper. As we've talked about before, find a favorite beekeeper if you don't have one. Uh, or use their lacuma and coconut palm sugar sweetener and skip the bees entirely. Uh, we've been known to add Mudwater's coconut milk and MCT creamer into their hot drinks as well, and it's delicious. Mudwater's flavor is warm and spicy with a hint of chocolate, um, ginger, cardamom, nutmeg, cloves, as I've already gone through. It's also delicious, blended into a smoothie. This is not, in the Northern Hemisphere, not really the smoothie season, but uh, try it with banana and ice, milk or milk-like substance, mint and cacao nibs. At any point that the mint is growing outside where you live is probably a good moment for this smoothie, and it's fantastic. Mudwater is 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified, and it allows you to build a morning ritual that promotes sustained energy without the crash. So visit mudwater.com slash darkhorse to support the show and use code darkhorsemud at checkout for 15% off. That's M-U-D-W-T-R dot com slash darkhorse. Use darkhorsemud at checkout for 15% off. All right. Do it. Boom. Did it. All right. We are... Back in regular Dark Horse mode. All right. So Dark Horse Hollow mm-hmm. mode, we're going to call it. Are we? And yet you haven't brought me any ice cream. No, I should have thought of that. But mm-hmm. anyway, perhaps next week. It won't happen. <laughs> I know this. Probably true. <laughs> if you're talking to me ice cream on camera, it would melt. Oh, but it would attract the cats. Where are the cats? Where are they? I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, should we start with a brief discussion of, uh, of of the Inca? Yes, a brief discussion for which I have not properly prepared. But right. I will say that uh, the Incan Empire was a true empire that stretched over many hundreds of miles at least. Uh, many hundreds of miles. I'm tempted to think it might have been a thousand. But um, in any case, so it was linear down to the coast, not so much. They didn't drop over into the Amazon basin so much. No, but, it was you know, definitely a, lot, a, a, lot of, a mountain. A lot of the Andes. Uh, yeah. yeah. But in any case, what they did was they uh, they subjugated many a people. But in the subjugating of those people, they also linked them into a vast trade network. And they also brought with them a a kind of wisdom about how to um, provide for the people who were linked together in this large collaborative entity, including um, the creation of these larders, which were basically excess food was stored in a stable way for uh, times of famine, so the point was if you were conquered by the Inca, you became part of this thing that had actually a degree of uh, uh, at least robustness, if not anti-fragility to it. So anyway, I, I think, you know, you and I have said uh, that in some sense the Maya were um, very much the like the Greeks of the New World, yeah. and the Inca were like the Romans, but in both cases there were substantial differences, and the um, the nature of the empire that the Inca had, I'm not saying it didn't have degrees of brutality. Obviously, people don't, you know, get conquered by empires easily, but uh, it deserves a fresh look because it wasn't simply uh, a New World version of the Romans. It was a very different kind of empire. Well, I mean, I think 
no empire is simply uh, almost no long-standing empire is simply brutal and evil, right? So um, I don't. We did not prepare this at all. There's just a line in the ad read that we just did about uh, about um, Lukuma, um, this this uh, this tree, this fruit from this tree that the Inca apparently used. Uh, and I guess what what I can pull up from memory, since we didn't we did not think that we were going to be talking about the Inca today, two of the cultures uh, whom who were either incorporated into or ended up sharing space with the Inca uh, who, before the Spanish arrived, uh, with whom we had some you know interaction much later on, right? In terms of what kinds of um, traces they left are first the Yumbo, uh, who, uh, whose, whose foot trails in, um, in, a, in a particular amazing um, spot that we've spent time with students in Ecuador, um, the name of which I've now briefly um, blanked on. Wait. It starts with an M. Makibakuna. Makibakuna, yes. Um, so Makibakuna, which is a giant reserve um, very close to Quito, um, has in it these ancient Yumbo trails. And, you know, this is this is uh, volcanic soil, but also sort of a, a little bit clayey, but, you know, very, very extraordinarily rich soil that also when you walk a trail over and over and over again, the trail does not, unlike in the jungle, unlike in the lowland jungle to you know, either side, the west or the east, uh, is not going to disappear over time. Um, it will basically just deepen and deepen and deepen. And so you can literally walk. And I actually, I wrote a piece about this that um, I can link to. Um, in the footsteps of the Umbo, who were walking these trails hundreds of years ago. And you know that you are walking in their footsteps because these are very narrow paths that in some cases are, are so worn in that the sides of the trails are four or five, even six feet on either side of you. Oh, higher than that. They can be. And often they're, they're not very high at all. Uh, but these, these trails are ancient. They are absolutely ancient. And um, they're obviously, so in Ecuador, the Inca um, weren't present for very long. It was something like 80 years before yep. the, the Spanish showed up. So to some degree, because we've spent time in Ecuador and we haven't spent time in Peru uh, or Bolivia, our understanding of the Incan influence is kind of a kinder, gentler, <laughs> if, if you will, because they just didn't have that much time uh, before, you know, the next <laughs> the next empire came and, and, and slaughtered them. So um, the Yumbo were, as we came to understand being at Macapacuna, uh, effectively uh, employed, uh, not enslaved, but employed uh, as um, as trail runners um, to deliver messages and to some degree, I think, goods um, between uh, distant places um, by the Inca and then the Canyari. They were ironically uh, the Amazon of their day. Even they were <laughs> way too high for that to be the case. Yes, they were really. the headwaters of the Amazon is the way to think of them, I guess. <laughs> That's right. It's a little, it's too far north to be probably near the headwaters of the Amazon and also just, Wrong side. just over on the western yeah. side rather than the eastern side. But yeah, no, the, 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 the theme, holds, I think. The, yeah. the pun was worthwhile. It was in the ballpark. Enough, enough to be justified. Okay. Which few puns are. <laughs> this, this is true on this, in this point. You and I will agree. And then far, a little farther south in Ecuador, uh, you have Inca Perca, which is the largest, Inc it's called an Incan uh, ruin in Ecuador. But in fact, what it is, is a shared ruin of uh, the result of a royal wedding between, and I don't remember which sex is which, but let's call it like an Incan um, prince and a Canary princess, or maybe it was the other sexes. But uh, the Inca came in, tried to um, 
tried to conquer the Canari. The Canari were having none of it, and they actually were able to resist. And the Inca did what sometimes will happen in such a case. They said, okay, well, never mind then. How about we join forces? And so you end up with, uh, you ended up with not just Inca Perca, which was a center of culture, uh, but it was, it was a, it was a hub for many, for many places, including, you know, maybe Yumbo trail runners, but also down to the coast uh, where there were additional, like the Valdivians and such, uh, they were doing trade uh, with the Valdivians. So the, the Inca were hardly the only people uh, in pre-Columbian Andean, uh, Andean America. And yeah, they were brutal and, um, and definitely did a lot of nasty things to people whom they were hoping to subjugate. And also that's not the only thing they were. Yep. Well, I would, the degree to which they were brutal needs to be thoroughly, uh, analyzed because it's, Mm -hmm. it, it, I think, uh, my sense is that it is quite different than the standard Anyway, we, we don't have to mm-hmm. dwell here, but uh, the degree of the brutality is well worth a deep dive. Yeah. Okay, so um, there are three things that we were hoping to talk about this week. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start. Sure. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Is that okay? Yes, I'm just making sure that I'm not forgetting to do something that needs to be done, but I believe we are we are where we need to be. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, last week on episode 163... The final thing we talked about was uh, the the newest way that Scott Adams was making the news, right? That he had read a poll that claimed that nearly half of black people who were asked don't feel safe around white people. He advised white people to move away from black people into their own neighborhoods. We talked about this. Uh, and we talked about the fact that he is advancing the cause of segregation. And, you know, l- much ink and, you know, airwaves have been spilled. That's not what happens to yeah, airwaves. But, airwaves but... Uh, has <laughs> I don't know what the right analogy is. Um, over this, uh, you know, it's it's been over a week now, and uh, it it continues to have repercussions, including that apparently uh, Dilbert's been dropped by you know almost every newspaper. Um, I think it may be all. Of them. Yeah. Um, so, um, so that's just something that happened as a result of um, Scott Adams saying saying what he said, which we talked about last week. Um, we suggested that this was among other things un-American, uh, what he was proposing, and wait, wait. In fairness, what he was proposing is un-American. The idea that it is not okay to be white is also un-American. Right. And I believe those two things have to travel together in this story. Right. We're getting there. Okay. Um, so I saw a few comments that um, scoffed at us in response to what we had said, uh, including one in particular that said, and this was the, the theme of all of them, didn't you guys just move to an island to escape living near people who hate you? As if this is a response. I mean, it is, it is, it is posted as if it's a response. And so I have, um, and you know, the answer is no, no, we didn't. Um, but it raises a couple of interesting issues that I think are worth us exploring because although this doesn't, this would not seem to be, uh, in, you know, the wheelhouse of how to think scientifically, which is a large part of what we, we do here on air. We explore things scientifically. I think it actually makes this point, um, surprisingly well, which is that, so and that's the first of two points, and the second um, is actually about about race. Um, the first then is um, again the comment, and this is just one of a few that showed up. Didn't you guys just move to an island to escape living near people who hate you? Well, there's an observable fact: we just moved to an island. That is true. Did we move to an island to escape living near people who hate us? No, 
No, we didn't. Uh, so there are a lot of reasons we moved to an island, and I think we've talked about some of them, and there are others that we haven't talked about, and um, and we might continue to do so in the future, but that's not the point here. The point is uh, that there's an observable fact we recently moved to an island, and onto that is a uh, is an assertion of interpretation of what our motives were, which are then conflated as if the fact of the observable fact inherently means the second thing, the interpretation. And this is, this is a um, pretty common, um, but really important to avoid error that uh, people make in science and in interpreting things in general, right? Is that, and, and you know, specifically since most of my empirical uh, scientific experience is in the field doing animal behavior, this is absolutely one of the things that you have to train yourself to. And when you're teaching students to do animal behavior, you have to really, really drum into them and no one is going to be perfect. But the, the point is you're going out to look at what is happening, to see what is actually happening, to observe what is actually happening. And even our language tends to add interpretations to it. And so I'll give an example from the work that I did in Madagascar uh, with these, you know, I was working on these poison frogs, which have, as it turns out, I was the first person to work on them, um, you know, incredible social systems with different kinds of territoriality and these extended fights that can go on for like more than an hour and this really intricate courtship and a lot of parental care, like all of these things, uh, which I had hypothesized, and if I'm being honest, hoped that I might see. Uh, but if it wasn't true, it wasn't true. That's, you know, that's the way of nature. Um, but when I first went, because, because um, the not closely related, but very um, similar in terms of some of the other aspects of who they are, dark poison frogs in the new world do these things. That was part of why I hypothesized that I might be seeing these things. But when I first went and I marked the frogs and so I knew who I was looking at, and I would see them you know, two, what I understood to be males, wrestling with one another for a very long time. It was important that I not write into my notes, fight. Now, that seems like it's ridiculous, right? Why do I have to go through all of that trouble to write down exactly what I'm seeing? And some of it I, I recorded on video, um, but really describing actually what, what is happening and who's doing what to whom, who's on top of whom, who's chasing whom, who's, you know, knocking whom off a piece of bamboo. And over time, I came to be able to say, okay, I have these types of fights, and now when I see this thing that I've carefully defined over here, I can say, okay, that's, that's this type of fight, and I can just write that into my notes while I'm watching, and I can know for sure that what I was seeing was this. But I had to spend a lot of time watching first, because if I just started out by saying, well, obviously that's a fight, then when I say later, ah, well, I always saw these fights between such and such individuals under these conditions, there's no way for anyone, including myself, to know if I actually know what I'm talking about. Because I've added the interpretation in in the beginning. I've, I've, I've encoded my interpretation of what I thought I was seeing and conf conflated it with, inextricably interwoven it with the interpretation. And at that point, you don't have data anymore. You have your interpretation and you can't find the data separate from the interpretation. And you really have to go back to step one and start everything from scratch. Hey, this is... Um... In order to do scientific work well, the mind is sort of built for science, but mm -hmm. it is not built for the formalisms that are required to do it well. 
right? It's built to informally do something scientific. Yeah. And the the formal part actually requires you to break normal human habits, right? So as, as I think we've discussed before, the mind works based on hundreds of probably thousands of heuristics. Even the visual system works based on heuristics. Mm-hmm. We're not processing everything pixel by pixel. You're processing things based on, you know, things that our tables tend to look like tables. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, the point is it makes doing the difficult stuff possible by skipping all of the stuff by making assumptions that tend to be a good bet, which is why optical right. illusions are so interesting because you can detect any place where you have a perfect ambiguity between two interpretations the heuristic will wobble back and forth or it will pick one and not be able to see the other right. whatever it is um so the point is look heuristics are the key to not being paralyzed by the number of things that you would otherwise have to analyze but but mm-hmm. in order to figure out something that's truly difficult you're on an I- island far away or truly new Right. completely new to you Complete- and you're trying to map it onto things that you already know like that's that's the error and right. what you're after is really stuff that isn't intuitive and obvious right right the the important stuff that comes out of the investment in what we call science is the stuff that you didn't know to expect mm-hmm. right and so in order to do that well you have to train yourself out of leaping to the conclusion that what you're seeing just maps onto the heuristic that would ordinarily take care of it right And so I really like your point here about, yes, we moved to an island. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it wasn't about, uh, it's not entirely wrong that uh, the discomfort with what was going on on the mainland had something to do with it. But it was not about moving away from people who didn't like us. So we'll get get to that. That point is the second point. But let's just just stick with with this first. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I think we more or less got there. The point is... Breaking the bad habit of leaping to conclusions is the key to actually seeing things that you didn't walk into the situation knowing. Yes. Yeah. No, that's, that's right. And, um, I guess I, I, I did want to say a couple of things about, um, you know, some of our, some of our reasoning, which is, you know, we don't need to explain and isn't necessary to respond here, um, is that, you know, our, our perception that global systems are becoming less stable and um, that we've been dreaming about these islands since we first came and visited them 17 years ago or so, 18 years ago now, something like that. And um, and frankly, the coyotes were driving us crazy. <laughs> I'm talking about actual coyotes, like wild canids. And uh, the, the, <laughs> the number of coyotes in Portland was insane. Yeah. Uh, and that sounds like a, a trivial thing, but it was actually... You have um, cats and you yeah. they go outdoors. It's not trivial. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, is is it true uh, that there are some people in Portland who who don't like us? Yeah, it's true. Uh, but I will say that one of you know one of I miss Portland. I've said this before, and I've gone back a couple times since we moved away. And I continue when I'm back there to have the experience that we were increasingly having before we left, which is. Um, not once in Portland have either of us um, had uh, someone come up to us and berate us, um, but. I don't know, one in two, one in three times that one of us would go out and someone would come up to us to say thank you. So, mm-hmm. um, it, I mean, if anything, it was it was the opposite sort of sort of move. But the second point uh, is, what if we had? Like, what what if that had been the well, reason that we had moved? Can I pause you there? Because I do want to put some 
some flesh on these bones surrounding the concern about Portland. Okay. It is very different. Okay, so there are people in Portland who hate us. No doubt. Who cares? Well, we have to care. Because what happened in okay, Portland... That's, that literally is where we're going. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know that. I thought <laughs> okay. you were moving on to this other point, but... Well, that, but that... Okay, We, we, we you, talked you about this. Like, this, this is the other point. The other point is, what if we had done this? Like, what if, what if the reason to move, which it wasn't, but what if the reason to move had been to get away from people who don't like us? Would this be the same thing as what Scott Adams was advising? No. Ex explicitly and formally not. Because taking action to protect yourself against specific and particular threats from real people is not just reasonable, it would be foolish to not do so, right? To not consider uh, the fact that there might actually be real risks against you, right? And um, imagining that that shouldn't be part of your understanding of the world is not just naive, but beyond foolish. Whereas uh, lumping in all people of certain demographic markers as having a certain set of beliefs and acting as if you know what that group will do is ascribing individual level beliefs to a population and imagine that you know what that entire group thinks. And that pretty much is the definition of racist. It's no more racist than what the you know survey suggested a bunch of people were thinking who were answering the survey, right? Um, it's, it's racist either way, but it is absolutely not the same thing to understand yourself as being in a situation where there are individuals who are very interested in doing you harm, as opposed to saying, oh, I know those sorts of people. Those sorts of people um, don't like my sort of people, and so therefore I'm going to separate myself from them. Really, totally, fundamentally different actions. Totally, fundamentally different. All right, I am going to go back and make this point. I don't think it's. it's I, don't, your, yeah. I don't think it's the point that that you're getting at here. Who cares that people in Portland didn't like us? I care. Do you know why? Because the, those who govern Portland stopped enforcing the law. They basically prevented the police from showing up. They allowed the police to be demonized. The police stopped showing up. So it shouldn't matter that you live in a city where people hate you. Mostly, our experience in Portland was very positive. The fact that there are a small number of people who hate us shouldn't matter, because in general, the law protects you from that. But if your city government stops enforcing the law, that's a serious problem. So anyway, I just want to put that on the table. The problem wasn't people who don't like us, who were there in tiny numbers. Um, the problem was the governance of the thing, which made the city, frankly, not tenable in the long term. You can't not enforce the law and have a city continue to function, and it was visibly deteriorating as a result of this. That's one thing. And we and we talked a lot, especially during the summer and fall of 2020, about the ways in which the law was not being enforced. And one of one of the ways that that happened was, of course, you know, the all cops are bastards campaign and the um, defund the police. Which I cannot believe that we were there. And, um, you know, mostly those policies have been reversed across the across the cities where they happened. Um, but also just providing so little support for people who were actually employed in law enforcement that they they left in droves 
right? Like people, people retired early. They left and they left to either um, go be police elsewhere where they were going to actually have some chance of, of being appreciated um, or they found new work. And then the recruitment effort started. It's like, come be police and oh, yeah, like a lot of really awesome people are going to choose to take on a job where you are under a tremendous amount of stress and physical risk all the time and you are going to be the one blamed almost no matter what if something bad happens and blamed so, blamed means you actually could end up in prison right. for a shooting that under normal circumstances where there was not hysteria around something like race a shooting that had to happen because it's in the normal course of policing as a result of the fact that somebody is threatening somebody else with a deadly weapon or whatever, such a circumstance could turn around on you in Portland as a result of the fact that the narrative was the problem here is the police and the city government, um, I think, cynically went along with that insanity, which made it dangerous. And you know, blame, it, bl blame is a weak word here, yes. Yeah. Held responsible for anything, that, anything bad that might happen. Which isn't to say and that there isn't bad policing, but of course... You know, if if that's going to be the assumption, uh, then it's a crazy place to take up that work. So, yes, the recruitment effort uh, was ridiculous. Um, okay. Second point I wanted to make is, uh, and it's something I felt I should have said last week, the, m the most troubling thing to me about what Scott Adams said was something closing in on half of the people responding, which as you and I discussed, the survey uh, methodology is not really defensible. It was a tiny survey and it was uh, voluntary um, self-reports. So, okay, what does it mean that something like closing in on half? But you really want to abandon a population in which more than half of the people are on your team? Even if it was only 25% of the black respondents to this survey who had said it was okay to be white. You really want to abandon those people? Isn't that the time when it is most important to align yourself and to recognize that um, it's your duty as an American to stand up for other Americans who are uh, in the minority and, and jeopardized? So in any case, the more you look at what he said, the more uncareful it is relative to even if you took the evidence at face value. Yeah, and I, I guess I will just repeat that. He is responding with racism to race, with racism to racism. He's responding to racism with racism. The What is reported in the survey, if it's real, is downstream, again, if it's real, if there's close to half of black people who were saying, yeah, no, like not, not good, uh, with, with people who don't look like us. Um, that is downstream of some amount of historic racism. Um, right. But a whole lot of the woke ideology that passes itself off as about, you know, love and rainbows and unicorns and is actually divisive and fundamentally racist itself. And so, and you know, and you did say this last week. Um, of course, one of the results of such a crackpot ideology that is inherently racist and is pretending to be anti-racist uh, is going to be that people who weren't racist, who aren't buying the ideology, um, but are watching people get radicalized around them, will themselves become radicalized and become more racist. 
Like that is going to be the result of this kind of ideology taking over. And uh, people will be less able to talk to one another as individuals and more likely to focus on demographic markers uh, that you can't change. And accident of birth uh, becomes much more important than what you make of yourself. And if, you know, it's, it's the end of merit, it's the end of kindness, and frankly, it's the end of humanity. Certainly the end of America. Um, I, I do want to say... Oh, America uh, too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, for me, the jury is still out as to whether or not what Adam said is motivated by racism. I actually don't see that as necessary. I think it was very uncareful and very unwise. Um, but I didn't, I did not attribute a mental state to him. I said, the pronouncement is racist. It is I, I think functionally I, racist. I think that's a distinction that is, is worth making, um, in part because um, some of what is coming out of the woke ideology uh, will say that it doesn't matter at all what your intention was if, you know, this, this thing is inherently uh, racist. And I will say, you know, in general, I don't, I don't buy that, but arguing that, uh, that you should separate yourself um, by race is a racist pronouncement, whether or not it's motivated by a belief in the superiority um, of or fear of one race or another. You have compelled me. You're right that it's, it is actually not necessary that it be motivated by a, um, a racist ideology or emotional impulse. Mm -hmm. But the point is, my point about it being less than half yeah. Um, and again, even if it had been 75%, right, it is, mm -hmm. it is our duty as decent human beings to stand by the 25% who aren't saying that, right? Um, but in this case, what he did, the thing that really did uh, strike me as way off, Scott, if you're listening, listen carefully, um, was to globalize um, a basically what he said was specifically get away from black people on the basis yeah. that something less than half of them in this flawed survey seem to have indicated that uh, it wasn't okay to be white. So I agree with you. you, you you've persuaded me. Uh, the statement is racist, even if there is no racism in Scott. And I can't say one way or the other, but right. I don't, I don't see the evidence of it. Um, so, and just, just to return to the first point, because it's it's the one that I care more deeply about, honestly, um, which is, you know, how, which is the nature of sense making. Like, how, how is it that we understand our world and uh, and, you know, how how do the tools of science help? And it is it is this one. It is an observation and the interpretation of the observation, even if the interpretation of that observation holds 98% of the time are two different things. And the observation of, in this case, a, a factual recording of like something happened, or if you're going out into the field with a hypothesis you already have and you're actually taking data, um, conflating what you see, what you observe with your senses, biased though they are, to be true, and as accurate and careful and factual a recording of what happened as possible, is always different from what it means. And I think part of the, frankly, part of the insanity of the summer and fall of 2020 
and of sort of woke ideology in general. And a lot of the propaganda that we were told around COVID was about taking, was about, you know, someone with an agenda taking a nugget of truth and then wrapping it in an interpretation and pretending or believing, some of each, I'm sure, uh, that those two things were inextricable. And uh, that, that became the way that people got confused and convinced. Like, oh, well, uh, if, if I have to believe all women all the time, then okay, then that accusation must be true. Oh, if um, I know, I know that vaccines are safe, therefore these vaccines must be safe, right? Like there, there were just, there were these tricks constantly around taking something that, you know, may even not have been true, but like that you believe fundamentally and wrapping it in another thing, wrapping it in the interpretation and then presenting it as if it's a single thing. So, I mean, maybe that to me, that became one of the things that I was thinking about a lot this week, having seen these comments. And like, everyone has to, whenever being told anything, go, okay, is what you're being told the thing that they actually know? Or, or, do, they know, or do they not know anything, which is often the case, right? Or do they know something, but they have added on to that something and it's that add-on that's actually the thing that's making you insane right the thing that is why you can't communicate and you know this happens interpersonally right um and everyone who's ever talked to another human being who's ever cared about another human being and has therefore come back at some point been like wait why did you do that what happened like wh why were you having this argument right um well often at least some part of the argument will come down to like well you said this like no i didn't say that what i said was x and I see how you could have heard that that meant Y, but what I said was X. And, you know, no, I'm not being a pedant here. And this isn't just semantics, because if, if, like, if, you, if both of you are being honest and both of you do actually have a good memory, and you can go back and say, oh, okay, I see now why you're angry with me, because you think that I believe this thing and it took you down that road. But what I said was actually careful. And no, I wasn't even trying to leave my options open. I didn't even understand that that was an interpretation you could have had for my words. So, you know, lang language is obviously different from, you know, observation of like, move to an island, um, you know, male frog on top of male frog, um, you know, riding it around while the frog underneath calls. Um, like th those are different kinds of observations than like, here was a word and words are so often metaphorical even when they seem like they're not, still. With language in particular, we will add our own interpretations for what that meant as a sort of a shorthand for encoding. And downstream of that lies so many of our disagreements. Yeah. So you, you got to exactly one of the points I wanted to highlight here, which is that this is another case of, um, it's not exactly a heuristic, but it's the same thing that creates heuristics that yeah. trips you up, where the point is, do you, you know, let's say you're reading a book. Do you want to remember it verbatim? That's a lot of hard disk space that that's going to take up in your mind. Mm -hmm. Do you want to remember, you know, the plot in some condensed way that you can recover it and discuss it, but you don't have every word, right? Yeah. And so the point is the efficiency gain you get from editing things down to their meaning is spectacular. But in interpersonal communications where it's not even something that the author has carefully scrutinized and said, yes, this is exactly what I wish to say, yeah. but it's something you said off the cuff, yeah. it's very easy for the other person to say, okay, I understand what they said. 
here's the meaning, they remember it, and then when they have to recall what it was that was said, they will extrapolate back to what must have been said mm -hmm. from a meaning that may have been incorrect. I know what you said. Right. I'll actually often means, I know what you meant. It's like, well, how, how could you have? Or, I know what I understood you to mean at the time, and it would have sounded like this, and then it's like, well, I didn't say that. Mm -hmm. And so this is a very normal thing. And in, of course, you know, people have studied this in courtrooms, right, right? you know, right. Uh, Many times, multiple witnesses will have very different versions of events. Um, but I also wanted to point out that um, humans are a special case. You, the process you were talking about with the frogs, where you mm -hmm. walk into a bamboo stand and you don't leap to the conclusion that just because it looks like a fight, it is a fight. It may well be. In fact, that's the most likely thing it's going to be. Mm -hmm. But And over time and repeated observations over weeks and months, you can say, okay, I have now categorized and I now have my categories and they might not be right, but here we go. You compel yourself. And yeah. the great thing about this is if you do it right, right, at the point that you stand up in front of a room of people and you present the thing that nobody knew before, and people say, wait a minute. And they sure? say, yeah. but how do you know that was a fight? And you say, well, here's how I know that was a fight. And here, you know, and so the point is you can, you can recover how it is you became compelled that the thing that you think is a fight actually is one. Mm -hmm. And it, it's all very robust. Very often you don't know who's making sense until you push them around. Just a simple fact. Oh, that's important. Yeah. Yes. You know, very often you don't know who's making sense until you push them around. Yep. And very often, but in academic settings, but I think in all settings, but we've just seen it more in academic settings, you can just tell the difference between the person who's like, well, I'm, there's no time for questions. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, that someone else did that part of the work. I do want to, <laughs> one thing, people are going to jump on us, but you don't have people on Dark Horse who disagree with you. No, this is something that requires good faith. And frankly, in many cases, we don't know who has, who is acting in good faith. And so... I am not arguing that you are forced to confront every sophist and pedant oh, who wants to attack you. I'm just saying you can tell when two honest interlocutors interact, you can see whether people know what they're talking about. It's it's clear. Well, and and frankly, having um, you know again, not this week, not next week, but you know, having live Q and A's uh, in which people are people we don't know ask questions, and you know we don't get to all of them, and occasionally we look at one and say that's. We're not going to read that out loud. Yep. Um, but uh, you know, we invite questions from from our audience every week, almost. Yep. Okay. But the thing I wanted to recover here is mm -hmm. you and I have said many times mm. that often, in order to understand what's taking place in a human interaction, you need to effectively turn the sound all the way down, right? And so the type specimen for this kind of problem is let's say that you're watching. A, uh, a dispute between people who are romantically involved. There is a lot that is said, right? And that what is said, it's very hard not to process it. And if you process it, then you're going to try to track the details of the he said, said, she said, and it may not add up and you can't recover an explanation of what actually must have taken place in order for these two different perspectives to exist. On the other hand, if you turn down the sound and you treat it primatologically, it's often very clear what's going on, yeah. right? Yeah. Somebody's hurt, there's an act of contrition, it's not sufficient, whatever, you know. The point is, it's straightforward at one level, and the words are confusing you actively, For sure. right? So that's obviously not true in every situation, presumably in international relations there's a bit of that but there's also a bit of what exactly does that treaty say you know um but anyway the idea that 
Um, the human mind can be misled by meaning that is irrelevant to the underlying issue is mm -hmm. absolutely crucial. And uh, it's, a, it's a tough lesson to learn, but once you learn it, you'll realize, oh, maybe this is one of those situations. Yeah, absolutely. Is that all? Uh, I believe that is all on that topic for me. All right. Uh, so you also wanted a couple things. You wanted to talk about... Daniel Ellsberg. Yes, I did. Who uh, was the? Oh, do you you tell me if when you wanted up, um, or if you wanted up up to you. So why don't you? This is this is your topic. Why don't you introduce? Okay, so um, who is Daniel? Many Ellsberg? of you will know who Daniel Ellsberg is, but for those who don't, Daniel Ellsberg is the person who released the Pentagon Papers, and in 1973, I think. 69. And the book came out in 71, 72. I looked it up. I, uh, I may have it wrong. I may have the date wrong, but I thought his legal Papers jeopardy was, history. Uh, was in 73. Um, he was, he was an indict, under indictment maybe early and... No. In any case, doesn't really matter. The, the Times started reporting, began publishing the series of articles in 71. 71. And uh, it, it, they contain a history of the U.S. role in Indochina um, Right, but, the, but his legal jeopardy 68. is what I was responding to. Okay. I think that's a little bit later. But anyway, the point is, Ellsberg decided to release papers that were, if you think about the way government works, right? If you have an entity, the CIA, the Pentagon, whatever, you will need to have some repository of institutional knowledge, right? And the institutional knowledge can't be if it's an entity that isn't telling the full story to the public or isn't even telling a true story to the public. The institution has to internally understand what happened mm -hmm. in order that it doesn't become confused later, right? Um, and so anyway, what he got a hold of was the Pentagon's internal description of how Vietnam had proceeded, how we had ended up at war there and what it all meant. Mm -hmm. And it was explosive, right? It was absolutely devastating to the public narrative. Um, and it revealed uh, uh, duplicitousness um, on the part of uh, the Johnson administration. But in any case, revealing this was obviously, in retrospect at least, a protected activity. Right, this was journalism, and <clears throat> the fact that this was very destructive to the federal government's narrative is beside the point. It was, you know, this was a journalistically justifiable release, but it didn't mean that Ellsberg didn't end up in major jeopardy, and he did. He was threatened with, I think, the Espionage Act, um, and he lived in fear that he would be locked away. And in fact, he, in, in what happened uh, this week, he talks a little bit about. Uh, the jeopardy that he felt and that he thought he might live for the rest of his life behind bars, more or less as Julian Assange finds himself. Mm. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> so he's a very courageous, interesting, patriotic guy. He also is an important intellectual contributor to the world, which I didn't realize until I started uh, looking back into his history. And it turns out that even before the Pentagon Papers, he contributed uh, basically a description of an important paradox. And the paradox is that people tend to prefer 
actually it's a Rumsfeldian paradox long before there was a, uh, a, an important uh, Rumsfeld. But the idea is that people tend to prefer to take risks that are known or that they think are known uh, above risks that are unknown, even if the risks that are known are much greater than the unknown risks are likely to be, right? So that there is a basically a cognitive defect where people sense that they can quantify the size of the risk will cause them to take on more risk than they need to, that the expected return might be better on the, well, here are some things we really can't say. That branch of the tree may be a better bet, but people are reluctant to do it, um, which is uh, highly relevant, I believe, to much that has taken place under COVID, for example, um, that we may even have been played by people who understood this paradox. Well, I've never heard this before, and so I don't know if I'm understanding um, correctly, but it sounds like there's an, you know, the additional concern is certainty versus uncertainty, right? And I mean, that that's maybe just built right into the thing, but it strikes me that that isn't, it isn't inherently a paradox because you're saying known risk, probably lower payoff, versus unknown risk, maybe higher payoff, but you know the, the devil is in the maybe, is in, is in the odds. Um, no, let's take an example. And Daniel, if you're out there, and I hope you are, there's uh, lots I'd love the opportunity to say to you, including thanks. But um, let's take the example of... Uh, do you get an mRNA vaccine or do you face COVID? Mm -hmm. You know, back in the days when we thought that that was a choice rather than, oh, you're going to get the mRNA vaccine and then you're going to get COVID anyway, which is what we now know is the case. But um, those who choose to get the vaccine. Yes. Right. Um, so if you have the sense that, oh, well, I can quantify the risk of a bad event from the vaccines because they were studied by Pfizer in advance of the release. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what the risks of COVID are. That's a brand new thing, yeah. right? And the point is actually your risks from COVID might be much lower because if you calculate it out, well, it is a virus and we are built to handle viruses that we've never seen before. And yeah, this is a funny one, but... Um, well, this, this strikes me as a strange example though, because the certainty, the, the certain side of this one um, was fabricated. Oh, it was bullshit. Right. It yeah. was not, it was, um, not only was the certainty fabricated, but uh, the valence was opposite. Well, that's why, that's why I'm saying that this may have been used actually to game us, that people yeah. who understood that we would recoil from the unknowns of some new virus mm -hmm. and that we would, you know, recoil into the hands of a pseudo-quantified bullshit study that said that this stuff was safe and effective, right? Mm -hmm. They may have understood that that was coming, or maybe not. Maybe they just mm -hmm. demonstrated the principle without understanding it. I think that's plausible on the basis that they may have evolved this behavior it may be emergent or they may have been fully aware i don't know but um but in any case back to ellsberg so ellsberg has made intellectual contributions he certainly made a major contribution to american history in um releasing the pentagon papers and uh putting himself in very serious jeopardy over them and then uh he also was targeted by nixon's plumbers in the Watergate scandal, remember what plumber means? They fix leaks. They fix leaks, exactly. And so anyway, they targeted Ellsberg. So he is an important historical figure. Mm -hmm. um, I will also say it is a matter of pride to me that early in uh, our being in the public eye, he began following me on Twitter. And I always felt like, you know, 
to have a historically important figure like that, somebody with deep courage follow, meant something to me. Yeah. So anyway, I was struck when he uh, announced on Twitter this week, um, he published a letter that he had delivered to um, his allies and friends in the anti-nuclear... and anti-nuclear movements. Right, the anti-war and anti-nuclear movements that revealed that he has been diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer, there are a couple kinds, but apparently he has the kind about which there's essentially nothing that can be done and has a very short time horizon. Um, and so on the one hand, that is tragic. Um, on the other hand, I thought that the grace with which he handled it was so extraordinary mm-hmm. that um, it actually raised some other questions which I think are worth addressing. Do you um, want me to just share a, a tiny please, bit from the first, the first tweet? Which do you want like me to put you, it up? You, you may do that if you, if you like. So this is his first. He says, I wrote this letter recently to my friends in, as we said, in the anti-war and anti-nuclear movements. I see it's being circulated. So I've decided to share it here. For all of you working on these issues, thank you and please keep going. So he says what Brett has just described. Um, I'm sorry to report to you that my doctors have given me three to six months to live. Of course, they emphasize that everyone's case is individual. It might be more or less. I have chosen not to do chemotherapy, which offers no promise, and I have assurance of great hospice care when needed. Please know, right now, I am not in any physical pain. And in fact, after my hip replacement surgery in late 2021, I feel better physically than I have in years. Moreover, my cardiologist has given me license to abandon my salt-free diet of the last six years, This has improved my quality of life dramatically, the pleasure of eating my former favorite foods, and my energy level is high. So I don't know how much you wanted me to share of this, but... He goes on. I think think that's probably sufficient to get the gist of it. Um, So this brought a number of things to mind. One, he reveals he is uh, 90... He'll be 92 on April 7th. He's closing in on 92. Mm Mm-hmm. And so what is one to make of a terminal diagnosis at 92? I mean, A, he's past the life expectancy, certainly for somebody uh, born in 31, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, he, is, he has lived a full life. He's lived an extraordinary life, and he's made real contributions, and he now finds himself faced with the end of his life. And he is feeling good. And this put me in mind of a couple things. One, it put me in mind of the extraordinary year that we had with your father after Mm -hmm. his um, first of two heart attacks. The second one took his life. The first one, um, basically, not to go back into the story which we've talked about elsewhere, but... Um, was so severe that the paramedics told us that he was gone upon seeing our children present, continued to work on him, and then revised their uh, diagnosis later. And we did not know that he would come out of the coma that they put him into. They cooled him down. But So just, just briefly, uh, you came to the door with our then seven- and five-year-old, would have been sons, um, and the paramedics had just told my mother and me that he was gone. They'd been working on him for 20 minutes. His heart had been stopped for at least that long. Um, 
and uh, they started working on him again um, upon seeing basically the next generation who were there to who loved their grandfather deeply uh, and 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 they saved his life and he we had another year with him somehow they or they... I guess younger than it was 11 years ago so that would have been they were younger they were six and four two little boys at the door yeah yeah but in any case whatever the particulars he came back he was shaken by the experience but he was himself and um the year that we had and it was really almost exactly a year yeah. uh was a tremendous blessing because he knew the fragile state he was in and we all knew the fragile state that he was in and so many of the things that needed to be said got said and you know it was absent that year would have been a very different loss i think so anyway i i'm you know thinking there are a lot worse things to happen to you than to get a diagnosis that gives you three to six months mm -hmm. to close out your business. And the fact is, at that age, you kind of got to expect it's coming at some point. So right. um, so anyway, uh, kudos to, to Daniel for confronting it this way. It also put me in mind of this, uh, you know, the Norm MacDonald story, which I find mm. Norm MacDonald, who I was also honored to be followed by. Um, Norm MacDonald had terminal cancer, and he did something very unusual, which is he decided to tell no one. And in so doing, he preserved the end of his life so that it was not overrun by everybody every minute that they were talking to him, thinking I'm talking to somebody who's about to disappear on me. And it struck me as unusual, but very much something that somebody should entertain. And so anyway, I think uh, the way Daniel Ellsberg is handling this is a model of a, a, a way to deal with such a thing that's uh, marvelous. He's not giving himself false hope. He's eating salt and, you know, the dangers of salt have been overrated. So, you know, um, it's, a, it's about, uh, it's probably about time that he took up eating salt again. Um, but it, in any case, it's a profound moment for all of us, and that we get to share the end of his life with him, I think, is uh, is meaningful. It's a it's a great way um, for a historical figure to um, to put a bookend on his own legacy. Yeah. And I had one more thing I wanted to add in. As long as we're talking about death and sort of what the adult viewpoint on it might be, um, this is not. Um, particularly related to Ellsberg, but it's a thought that I've had increasingly, and I think it belongs on the table because, frankly, I think it might have the potential uh, to save some lives. Um, so anyway, I'm open to pushback on this, but um, here's the thought. The thought has to do with the the mental process that I think leads many people who are in great pain to end their lives. And what I realized is that I hadn't heard the following thing, but I'm almost certain within bounds that it's true, which is that death can very definitely end suffering, but it cannot bring relief. And I suspect that many people who end their lives are not doing so simply to end a torment that will n never stop, right? Obviously, if you are in terrible pain and there's no hope of recovering, 
then ending suffering may be a perfectly valid uh, thing to, to need and to want. But I believe many people who do this are probably pursuing a relief that our minds tell us would be there and logically just simply can't. Um, and so in any case, I think that spell out as, as spell out why logically relief can't come with death. Because there is, because relief is a somatic experience. It's a cognitive experience. And to the extent that your cognition comes to an end, there is no relief to be had. And there is one caveat I will put on this, which is, and I believe many people who end their own lives convince themselves quite falsely that their life is um, burdensome on others. And what they don't realize is that the, in most people's cases, the loss of somebody, especially the traumatic loss to suicide, is extremely burdensome. It's, it's a burden that uh, loved ones often don't get past. Um, but uh, the, the caveat is, you, you know, um, in my own case, if my continued existence was more of a burden to my family than my exit, and there was no chance that it was going to turn around, right, then I don't have any continued reason to want to continue, and their relief could be something. But for most people, the idea that I just need some relief from this suffering, that's a non sequitur in, in the case of, of death, especially by one's own hand. And I thought it was worth uh, just simply expressing that in the hope that maybe some someone or multiple people contemplating their own predicament might realize that actually the way they'd been thinking of it was wrong and that the best thing to do is to confront the suffering itself and not uh, not take up arms against it as Shakespeare mm. put it. Yeah. Well, there's no real good segue to this. <laughs> uh, apologies. No. Oh, we, we put it in this. I got the segue. Okay. Sorry, I hate I hate to have done this to you, Daniel, because I've now taken that piece, which is isolated from your story, which triggered me to uh, to explore it. But I did want to say to Daniel Ellsberg, um, as an American, uh, a deeply heartfelt thank you for what you've done, and uh, I hope what time you have left is glorious and fulfilling and that uh, all the things that need to be said get said. So in any case, thank you. I concur. That's awesome. But that's not a segue. Um, okay. Given, you, you, given what you want to talk about next, that's not a segue. That's not a segue. Okay. Um, right. Yeah, no, I see the problem. <laughs> the problem. Yeah, we got a whole... Uh, well... Let's hope that everybody takes a bathroom break. You and I will um, uh, will segue in fourteen seconds. Okay. So, um, I, I you have to introduce us. Okay. I this is totally different segment. <laughs> totally different mindset. Okay. Many of you will be aware of the person. I never quite remember how she pronounces her name. I think it's Ayla. Um, her Twitter handle is. 
uh, Ayla underscore girl. Um, Ayla has made quite a name for herself. I will say I appreciate one thing that Ayla does. Ayla, who describes herself as autistic, has specialized in essentially publicly sorting out uncomfortable topics. She runs polls, she asks people questions that no one will ask, and these things often have a, um, I have found, useful uh, consequence, right? Causing people to think carefully about stuff that their minds tend to avoid. There have certainly been cases where she's asked stuff that just feels like, oh, geez, why would you even go there? But um, but any, in any case, I will say that I, there is a part of me that appreciates that aspect of what she's doing. But in this case, Ayla has um, gone on a rant, a multi-tweet thread. I've got a couple to read if you want. Yeah, let me just say what she is uh, clearly exasperated that what she has been doing and talking about has resulted in other people who she regards as uh, traditional or dismisses as traditional um, has caused them to uh, respond negatively to her. And anyway, uh, why don't you read a few tweets? But I I mean, I think you you buried the lead, which is that um, I don't know if she's a sex worker or she's just, um, or, or just, I don't even know what the other, what the just would be, but, uh, so I'm going to, even though we swear here, sometimes I'm going to, I'm going to just elide the, the cursing. So the, the opening tweet is, okay, what the F is going on with the neo-trads? I was just over here enjoying this free life, individualism, subversive, unwoke, cultural movement. And I thought everybody was on board, but suddenly, bam, we got a bunch of them spawning into sex negative trad caths or whatever. I don't know what cath is. But, I don't either. Um, and then a couple later, it's a, it's a, not a, too long a, a thread but a couple of the um tweets in the thread that struck me as particularly uh indicative of what she's on about um this reminds me of this is again ayla um if that's how you pronounce her name um on her little tweet rant as, as i think she describes it um this reminds me of the time i joined to lurk some trad christian chat room and i actually did it did it under my ayla name and the Christians sent me DMs threatening me that if I tried to seduce any of the men there, they'd ban me. But, like, why would I want to seduce them? In their terrified little minds, I'm a she-demon, prowling hornily around their frantically buttoned jeans, cackling when a man inevitably surrenders to his primal nature, sucking the morality out of his little chonk, and scampering off with his hard-earned 401k. So I read those two because they strike me as um, just really inconsistent with one another. Um, in terms of, uh, for someone who is supposedly very self-aware of, of her impact on the world, um, I joined to lurk some trad Christian chat room and like, why would I want to seduce them? Yeah. Why would they assume you didn't? Like, what are you, what are you doing there? You just used the word lurk and trad Christian chat room. And, um, anyway, you had, you had a number of things you wanted to say about Well, so first off, I actually, you know, I don't know whether Ayla is for real, okay? The fact is, she has broadcast something into social media space that um, definitely makes a stir, 
and she is monetizing it. And part of what her online persona is, is somebody who is deeply interested in the underlying truth of things like the, you know, the truths around sex, for example. Mm -hmm. To the extent that this is for real, right, that this is really just who she is and that whatever errors she may be making, they're honestly made, I actually think she deserves an answer as to why people would be upset by what she is doing and, you know, whether or not they are in some sense justified to be upset because there's something to be upset about or whether they are, as she uh, portrays it, simply infringing on her freedom as a human who is entitled to do what they want as long as she doesn't violate the law, right? Um, so anyway, I, I sort of wanted to take up the challenge and, you know, just describe why it might be that people would be upset and not without some cause. And I wanted to revisit something. I happened to see she tweeted uh, maybe a couple weeks back and she was talking, so she's, uh, of course, polyamorous, and she was talking about um, how she, uh, not only is she going to go screw other people while she's in a relationship with somebody, but she would be kind of turned on if her partner was also getting laid, right? Um, and so anyway, this is the kind of, vibe that she's putting out. And, you know, let's steal that. The fact is, you're a human being. You're the descendant of some species. You get one life. There's obviously something good about freedom. Who is in a position to tell you how to value your sexual self, right? If you feel like going to orgies and behaving this way, who gets to tell you not to? That's kind of the question. Right. And I don't think it's I think it's kind of a profound question. Right. You get one life when we tell you you can't do something. There better be a good reason. Right. And so that's the question is, is there a good reason? Or as she puts it in that first tweet, is the right way for us to view this? Hey, or maybe maybe actually it was in a tweet you didn't read. She basically says, look, I'm perfectly fine with you behaving in a traditional way. I have no problem with monogamous people just so long as you have no problem with what I'm doing, right? And so that's the question. is: do, Does either camp get to comment on what the other camp is doing for good reason, or is that an infringement in either direction? Okay. Are there externalities uh, that, that can't be abided from either of these sets of behaviors? That's exactly where I think this conversation goes. Um, so let us first just notice the following thing. In an ancestral circumstance, right, so we, none of us can be hunter-gatherers, right? It's actually just not legal. You can't take up hunting and gathering because you need a hunting permit and a gathering permit and where would you do it? And, you know, you're either on public land or private land. And so the point is, civilization took that, uh, that birthright of yours mm -hmm. and it took it away and it gave you some things in exchange. It gave you leverage in the world, right? You're much less likely to starve. There's a police force that, uh, unless you live in Portland, will show up if somebody tries to hurt you, right? That kind of thing. Um, but so the point is, um, you give up some freedoms in civilization and you get some stuff. And I wanted to point out first, about, before we get to any of the externality stuff, if somebody decided to deploy 
ALA's program in some past circumstance a thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago, it'd be a pretty short ride. Right. Because they'd end up almost immediately pregnant. And uh, if they weren't careful about how that happened, they would end up uh, raising offspring alone or depending heavily on family. And so there's a reason that all of those ancient cultures, and in fact, every culture that's ever been, has had rules about sexuality and how you deploy it, right? That's not window dressing. That's not uh, inherently oppression. If I may, it may be that sort of the, the core tension is what do we do with the freedoms that are made available by technology? That's it. So to the extent that one can control their own conception of offspring, and that that opens up a whole range of possibilities, the question is, are those all open to you to choose? Or does civilization have an interest in saying, actually, here's the way we're going to address this? And I would just point out, you know, you and I have described that there is a subtle difference between the world that you and I were born into and the modern world in the sense that people... There are no longer any rules. Just because you're married doesn't mean you're not on the mating and dating market. Who knows? Maybe you're polyamorously married and you're available to somebody else, right? So the point is you're, everybody is potentially fair game, right? Older men targeting younger women. Hey, that's fine as long as they're 18, right? It's all on the table. Is that good or is that actually harmful to what civilization is about? And so, okay, birth control makes it possible to do a great many things that would not have been possible in a prior circumstance. The question is, should we be limited, either self-limited by morality or limited by rules in some other uh, way? And I think the argument, the argument I would make, and I'm sure the argument you would make, is definitely, yes, that there are limits. Whatever the mechanism of those limits uh, is, there are limits. And well, and we get back to a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago about not wanting a lot of what we are about as humans. We don't want to live in the law. It's, it's too permanent. It's too hard. It's too, it's too difficult to change. Uh, and so, so we use things like morality and shame and appreciation and support and, you know, and, and, and the lack of support in order to, you know, nudge and move and um, create a world in which we all can do within limits that which is best for us while also impinging the least on others. Absolutely. And I think this is um, in the moment very much the most important point, which is there are limits. We can navigate them. Mm -hmm. But there are also different levels. It's, it's, in fact, a failure when we have to do these things by law because nothing else will suffice. And in most cases, we have, to this point, been pretty good at we, humanity, has mm -hmm. been pretty good at setting limits for ourselves and enforcing them based on things like, you know, shame and guilt and stuff like that. So I, I wanted to just point out this thing, which has fallen away from the discussion around sex in a way that it is, it never ceases to amaze me as an evolutionary biologist, right? Sex is obviously something way beyond reproduction for humans. And that is evolutionarily true. Evolution made humans 
uh, enjoy sex when it is not reproductive. And that is an adaptation, right? So that is a major evolutionary change. It's, uh, it's a godsend. It's all sorts of wonderful things. But, but the point is, that doesn't mean that the fundamental, right? It's, you know, we have this reproductive event that has been borrowed by selection for all kinds of other important stuff. And it's not trivial. That's part of the problem is the trivializing of this. Mm -hmm. So here's the central thing. What Ayla is doing basically um, takes civilization's fundamental purpose. And I say that without fear of contradiction. It's fundamental purpose and sidelines Which it. Which is? Uh, the production of a stable environment that allows it to continue into the future. Okay. In other words, the purpose of civilization are children and generations yet to come. You know, we are the temporary custodians of something precious that literally stretches back three and a half billion years. And our civilization is the current manifestation of this. And if our primary job is not understood to be making that possible to continue, then we fucked up, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the frustrating thing about what Ayla is saying is all else being equal, you as a human born onto the earth with a clock ticking before you go should be as free as possible. But as free as possible does not mean free to do anything and everything. It means within reasonable limits. Where we have an interest in uh, regulating behavior, maybe not by law, maybe just by tradition, but that has to come first. And to the extent that what Ayla is doing is monetizing sexuality, she may be doing something else, maybe this is fulfilling to her, or maybe it's just about money, but it doesn't really matter. The point is, it's really bad for the raising of children, right? The idea that we are going to take sexuality and we are going to turn it into this a la carte thing that anybody can re-envision in any way is definitely a threat to the much more constrained version of this in which people partner long-term for the production of a home that is hospitable to the raising of children who are then well-equipped for the world that they emerge into. And that stability <clears throat> creates the room for the remarkable things about humans that other organisms don't do. It creates the room for art and creativity and science and analysis and discovery and exploration and innovation. Under times of no stability, you, you don't have time for any of that. And maybe you get more sex with more people? Maybe? I'm not even convinced of that long-term, right? Um, but it, it's stability, I think, will be trotted out by, um, by people who make these sorts of arguments as boring, as staid, as trad. And I guess I would say to the degree that I still feel compelled to uh, defend enlightenment values, understanding, you know, more in the last few years about some of the ways that the enlightenment can be understood to have caused some problems too. But if I am, if I am going to stand strong in defending enlightenment values, 
which again, uh, you know, bring in an age of, um, of, of greater, greater wealth across for more people because of the analysis and the innovation, the discovery and the creativity um, that is facilitated therein. That can only happen from a stable base. Like that, that does not emerge from total chaos. And um, that's, that's not to say that um, individuals being chaotic don't, can't bring uh, tremendous insight into the world. Uh, or that um, after, you know, the, the phoenixing of civilization um, doesn't often produce some of the you know, fastest growth of insight and such after something like war or genocide. Um, but you don't need to burn it to the ground in order to get there. Yeah. Um, in addition to what you're pointing to, which is that a civilization that is well-structured to function, to produce children who are competent and, and, and secure, um, produces an excess that we can spend on all of the most marvelous stuff, right? That is absolutely true. The dark side of that is that this is also necessary for the safety of civilization, right? Mm. Civilizations need to be able to sober up when they are threatened by something. And to the extent that we have turned civilization into a carnival, we do not have the seriousness of purpose to handle things like an enemy that, you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's, it is, it's, it's a carnival. It's this like surface level excitement. And, you know, we're, it's, it's fast everything as we talk about in the book and we talk it's, you know, it's, Fast food, fast sex, fast media, fast everything. And it's titillating, but none of it is as satisfying or long-term pleasurable as the non-fast versions. And fast is a stand-in here. Uh, and so, you know, and slow, junk, junk the... uh, yes, the junk food, junk entertainment, junk, junk sex. That's, that's better. Thank you. Um, it doesn't, it, it, standing against that, is not, and you know, I, I think it comes up in this thread as well, and as, as we have said over and over again, and as we write in our book, you know, the sex positivity movement is cleverly, but dishonestly named, right? That, that, is, that is not actually, um, the, the people who are engaging in the sex positivity movement by far do not have a monopoly on the people who enjoy sex. And indeed, uh, there are many of us who will argue um, that what that does is goes down a path towards more more junk sex, more objectification, uh, more dehumanization, and objectification and dehumanization um, are key components in you know really bad sexual um, environments and and relationships, not the other way around. So sex positivity is actually really bad for sex as well as humans and everything else. Yeah, it's and um, I wanted to point out a connection. I'm not sure exactly how to describe it, but if you think about, you have a pleasure center, right? Let's just oversimplify this neurobiologically. You've got a pleasure center, right? It is supposed to be triggered when you accomplish something, right? The eureka moment, scientists describe, right? That is a reward you get for hard work thinking about something and the discovery of the answer of it, okay? It's one example among many, okay? You build something remarkable, you invent something, you get a burst of reward, right? Mm -hmm. Is it good for the reward center to be triggered? Oh, yes. 
what happens if you trigger it without having accomplished anything? Well, if you do it too much, you'll wreck your life, mm-hmm. right? This is why uh, drugs that simply trigger that rush are so dangerous, is that they take the reward that's supposed to drive you to all sorts of productive behavior, mm-hmm. and they cause it to be connected to a totally pointless at best activity, right? And so the point is that will take somebody who might otherwise be motivated to do something productive and maybe great, and will cause them to do nothing useful at all. Okay, that's the nature of uh, the pleasure center and the triggering of it, the triggering of it by short circuiting the pathway that is supposed to trigger it. Yep. Well, guess what? Um, the pleasure of sex, top of the list of pleasures. Um, this is a matter of short circuiting it. This is like a drug, and it's not a chemical drug, but the point is, it is that same idea that, hey, I've got a sexual pleasure center. I should be able to trigger that thing anytime I want, with anyone I want, in any way I want, and who's to tell me I can't? It's my pleasure center after all. Well, it's the same kind of advice as saying, you know, you ought to think really careful about taking, you know... About having a jar of Pringles every day. Having a jar of Pringles. That looks appealing. Or That tastes really good going down. Snorting a line of Coke or whatever mm. it is, right? Any of these things that short-circuit a fundamental motivator like that is a danger. What's mm-hmm. it a danger to? Well, it's a danger to you, but it's also a danger to civilization. And, you know, as I try to make this point, civilization used to run in part for a reason that's very uncomfortable, which was sex was scarce. And in order for men to be worthy of a sexual relationship, they had to impress. They had to be, uh, they had to achieve, right? I'm not arguing that's how the world should be structured now. That's a very biased world from a sexual point of view. But it did accomplish a lot of shit, right? It built civilization. And so the point is that was a motivator from the opposite world, right? The world that you are describing, Ayla, is a world in which this is available to anybody who wishes to turn this into a game. And if you make it available to anybody who is willing to turn it into a game, then many people, especially before they're old enough to have the wisdom to understand why that game might be a bad idea, are going to join that game, and they're going to have a very hard time leaving that game. So anyway, that is a danger um, to, to civilization. And I guess the last thing I would say here is, again, I'm not arguing, I really don't know to what degree Ayla is reporting her motivations accurately or to what extent her motivations are part of the allure that she is using to monetize this persona that she has built. I don't know, and I'm not saying that I do. But what I would point out is this is not an opportunity that scales. What you are doing, Ayla, is... It's density dependent. It is fantastically remunerative to you because you're a pioneer and the point is how many of those spots it's like you know the nba lures people who might have studied something that would have given them a route out of bad economic circumstances but because the allure of that small number of positions is so great it causes people not to realize actually the chances that i'm going to get there are so low i can't i can't do this and so in any case the point is look a small number of people can do what you're doing, Ayla. And if they do, I'm not saying it will make civilization non-viable, but you are playing with the stuff that does run that risk, 
you're not the only one playing with the only set of things that put it at risk, but this is one of the things that puts it at risk. And so in any case, think about whether or not the people who are reacting to you are not just having a hissy fit, but in fact are trying to explain something that isn't easily explained, which is when you do what you're doing, it becomes impossible for civilization to function in any way that it has ever functioned before, right? You are gambling on the fact that some functional mode of civilization will be compatible with what you're doing, and there is no proof of that. No civilization has ever functioned in the way that you're advocating. And so anyway, um, I think this is more than people just you know, clutching their pearls and reaching for fainting couches. This is actually people who can't quite explain the problem with what you're doing, but it doesn't mean there isn't one. Indeed. All right. Well, I think we've arrived. Um, we will be here same time next week. Uh, again, next week, we will uh, not be doing a Q&A, uh, but we'll be back the week after that, hopefully, uh, with, with the time once again, uh, when uh, when other constraints don't uh, don't show up on uh, next Saturday. Brett has his his Patreon meeting before our live stream. Consider joining him there. And um, at either of our Patreons, again, you can find our wonderful Discord server. And um, join me on Natural Selections. Uh, I'm reprinting this uh, upcoming week a uh, an essay that was only available in a in an anthology that was um, not widely available um, called um, I don't know he she. I can't remember what it's called. It's a bunch of pronouns. It's it's not widely available, so I don't know what it was called. No, right? no, you don't. Um, yeah, it was it was in this iconoclast anthology, and it's an exploration, uh, another exploration, but the longest one that I've done, of um, both both trans identity and also of of this, the the thing that is being called NB uh, non-binary. So that's on natural solutions this upcoming week. And uh, until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone.